Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Thomas Balga. I am the lead physician assistant at Yale New Haven Hospital in the emergency department. I've been with Yale for five years now, and I've been a physician assistant for about 17 years now. Today, we'll discuss sentinel injuries in child abuse. And today, I'm with my good friend and distinguished guest, Dr. Andrea Asnes. She has been with Yale for 11 years. She is a Yale child abuse specialist. She's board certified in child abuse. She went to Mount Sinai School of Medicine and, and graduated in 1998. She's also the director of the Yale Pediatric Residency Program. Andy, it's great to have you here. Very excited you're here. And welcome. Thank you so much, Tom. I'm delighted to have this opportunity to talk to you about this important topic. So, Andy, can you tell me what is a sentinel injury in child abuse? Of course. So, a sentinel injury um, is, by definition, a medically mild injury. So, that means that it's, it's an injury that doesn't require medical management or treatment. The best example I can give you is when you're walking along and, and you hit your shin on the coffee table and sustain a bruise. I do this quite often because I'm a little clumsy. Um, when I get that bruise, that is by definition an injury, but it's not an injury that requires medical attention and I would never seek care for it from, from a medical professional. I would let it just heal and go away. Um, but in small babies in particular and children who can't sustain those injuries by themselves, by walking around under their own power, um, those medically mild injuries are forensically significant. And what I mean by that is that they, um, they, they show that a child has been treated in a way or potentially show that a child has been treated in a way that's harmful or hurt um, because they happen in, in small children who can't sustain them under their own power. All right. <clears throat> Great. Thank you. So one concern I have is that we have to make sure we're at least looking at all the skin on babies to begin with. So really for our providers, they're not gonna appreciate an injury if they're not able to see it. So that's one thing we've done at Yale is we've really pushed to have all these children undressed into a, a Johnny Code type of thing so we can look at all their skin and be able to do a thorough exam. Do you think that's uh, something we should be doing? I think it's really important because, um, unfortunately, uh, when parents mistreat their children and harm them, um, they rarely come to us and tell us that that's what's going on. Um, these children are brought to medical attention for reasons other than that they've been physically abused. So um, they may come in with a complaint of, you know, the baby's crying excessively um, or having difficulty breathing or having a cold, um, and it doesn't necessarily prompt the medical provider to, to look carefully for other signs that might pretend possible abuse. So I think you're on to something very important there. Um, it doesn't take that long to do a quick exam, and that quick exam may reveal just the kind of injuries that I've been talking about, the markers um, for possible, possible physical abuse that are super important to recognize for what they are because they may be a sign of behavior that can escalate and lead to more serious injury and even death in children. So I think that careful look, um, just that simple act of disrobing, you know, having a baby be disrobed by his or her caregivers or a small toddler um, and looking uh, may make a huge difference in children's lives. So in the emergency department, we realize that it's a very fast-paced environment, but I think this is one time when, or, um, including other times, but this is definitely one time where we need to slow down, 
do a good history, do a good physical, and then document in the chart what we've done and what was communicated and what we're looking at. Um, Dr. Sheets has done a lot of work in child abuse. Can you discuss some of her work? I can. Um, actually, I'm, I'm privileged to know Lynn Sheets personally and have been um, a, a huge fan and consumer of her research. She's actually the one who ter- who coined the term sentinel injury. Um, I, I, I never had that term in my um, repertoire before. I used to think of these cases as missed cases, cases where um, I come to the bedside as a child abuse specialist and make a clear diagnosis of child abuse, um, but look back in the medical record or hear from the parent that there was a previous medically mild injury, like a small bruise on a baby's torso, for example, or a small bruise on the ear of a toddler. Um, And then I know, looking backwards, that that was a sign of physical abuse that subsequently escalated to the more serious cases that I'd been diagnosing. Um, Dr. Sheets gave me that wonderful term, gave us that wonderful term of sentinel injury, because it it really encapsulates exactly what I was thinking about. That is something that, you know, shows, that's forensically significant and shows us what's going on. So Dr. Sheets um, studied a population of patients um, for which she provided a consultation very much like the kind of consultation I and my partners provide here at Yale, looking at um, children who are suspected about of having been physically abused um, and determining um, whether they were or they weren't, which is how I spend a lot of my time, as you know. And in the population of children and babies that her that she and her team identified as having been physically abused, she found a very high rate, up to a quarter of them, uh, maybe a little bit more, had had signs of injury, mild injury, a sentinel injury prior to being diagnosed by her team with child abuse. And she learned this both by looking back at the medical record, and sometimes it was medical providers who documented um, a, a mild injury like this, like a bruise, or sometimes a small cut in the baby's mouth. Um, in the medical record. And sometimes it was the parents who told her, or the caregivers who told her, oh yeah, I saw a month ago a small bruise on my baby's leg. Um, but they didn't really recognize it for what it was. So, those, so she found a high percentage of the patients in her population of abused kids had had a sentinel injury. And on the other side of the coin, in, a pop, in her population that she did not determine were abused, found sentinel injuries to be exceedingly rare. So we, she showed us in a, in, in a research forum how important it is to recognize these sentinel injuries, thereby kind of confirming for me what I had had an anecdotal impression of as a clinician, that these, you know, looking back in the charts right. of many of the kids that I had evaluated and seeing these kinds of injuries documented. Okay, great. And we look at how babies develop and their developmental milestones. Why is that so important for providers to understand? It's a great question, Tom. I I think I cannot overstate how important it is to be able to correlate an injury on a baby or a small child with what that baby or small child is able to developmentally do. Um, We're all taught uh, when we're in school as medical providers about what normal development looks like, but there's actually a wide range of what normal is. And I think parents who are listening to this know that some babies walk at 10 months and some babies don't walk until until they're 18 months old. So there's a big spectrum. But knowing when a baby achieves certain milestones, um, particularly um, being able to get upright on two feet 
and do something called cruise, um, which means being able to move about on two legs upright, perhaps holding on, likely mm-hmm. holding on to um, a, a parent's legs or the coffee table and moving about um, on two legs. That's called cruising. And that's a huge milestone developmentally for kids to be able to start to hurt themselves in these mild ways. So bruising, a key sentinel finding um, in very small babies who can't do that is very worrisome. After babies can get upright on two legs and start to cruise and then from there walk and run, um, their capacity to sustain these kind of injuries grows tremendously. And then we worry less when we see right. those injuries. So a, so a, a, a nine-month-old who can cruise that has a bruise on his forehead from you know tipping yeah. over and conking his head on the coffee table doesn't worry me very much. Whereas in a two-month-old who can't do that, I would be seriously concerned about that same bruise in that same spot. Okay. And, you know... I brought this up with Dr. Leventhal a few times. We, one point that he makes out to me is that if you're able to, see what the child can do in front of you. And then that way you have a good idea w- whether that was really possible or not. Because some children you think would be able to do a certain type of movement or to roll or to walk, maybe can or can't. Uh, it's kind of a wide variance in age. Yeah, well, Dr. Leventhal, you know, is it was my mentor and the person who taught me how to do this job. So as always, he is correct. <laughs> and um, I think he, you're making and he's making an excellent point. In fact, um, I met a baby um, in the last couple of weeks um, who had sustained a fracture of the skull. And I was asked to consult on the baby who was at the time six months old. Um, but this remarkable baby, <laughs> um, who I think is developmentally quite advanced, was already doing that cruising that I just described, and even taking a couple of steps unassisted, just about to turn seven months, which I think uh, foretells some active times for this baby's mother, who's going to be chasing her around. I think she's going to be a future Olympian. But that's definitely an early demonstration of, of developmental abilities that we rarely see at six or seven months of age. Usually that's more of a nine months of age um, acquisition of skills. Right. Um, but you're right. Like, I think there's no substitute for verifying what an actual child can or can't do um, before making a judgment about whether an injury mechanism you've heard about is plausible. Okay. And let's discuss some of the red flags that we see, especially with bruising. One of the big, big red flags is no history of trauma, no history of falls. Can you go over that? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think there and again, it's important to recognize what the child's developmental ability is because sometimes kids can hurt themselves under their own power. And when you ascertain that a kid is developmentally able to do that, it may make you feel better. In the absence of developmental ability to hurt themselves, when babies and toddlers present with bruising or fractures and there's no story to explain that injury, um, we get very worried about that. So, you know, oftentimes there is a plausible history offered for an injury that we're evaluating, but in the absence of that, um, I'd like to caution frontline medical providers that it's really important to be concerned about the possibility of child abuse when there's no story offered. And how about when the story seems like it's changing from uh, from where you're interviewing to different folks in the room? Yeah, you make an excellent point. I think a, a changing history is another key red flag to pay attention to. Um, when caregivers offer various histories or an evolving history, um, it's it should definitely generate some degree of concern that child abuse is the reason why the child's been hurt. 
So one thing that has come up for me when I see a case that we're concerned about is uh, the point of you know, the family member lying and to, the ability to kind of sort that out because there's a lot of different reasons why people might lie. Yeah, it's a great it's a great point, and my, my sympathy always goes out to the frontline providers who have to try to figure this out. My experience tells me that, that parents will lie for, for reasons, for many reasons other than that they've done something wrong. So um, I think there, there should be a definite sensitivity to, to parents who are potentially here undocumented as immigrants. I've seen a lot of behavior in that setting for people who have fears that are um, based in their immigration status and not in having in, in fear of having been dis- of being discovered as having abused their children, who can act very cagely and maybe not tell the truth, um, even though they haven't in fact harmed their child. I had a case um, years ago um, of a of a of a woman who um, had lied to me. She was the mother actually. She was the grandmother of the child, and the mother was a teenager. But she was okay. the mother of the child. Um, and the, the, the grandmother lied repeatedly about being at home at a certain time um, when, when time proved that she wasn't because she was at work. And I had the opportunity later to ask her why she had um, directly lied to me about her whereabouts when the child was injured. And she was a woman who wasn't from this country and had, had, was here in, a, in what she perceived as a tenuous situation as an undocumented um, person in our community. And she said, I, I thought in this country um, you couldn't leave children with teenagers. So I lied because I thought I could get in trouble by not being home, even though the teenager in question was actually the child's, you know, the, the baby's yeah. mother. And that, that stayed with me forever because I thought, you know, this is, this is not because she's protecting someone or she's really fearful of something that has nothing to do with my evaluation. Okay, yeah, that's a great example. So if we pick up the... The story is not really making sense. The history is not making up really great sense. You know, I know we have the DART team here at Yale, and there's also the SCAN team at CCMC. Can you tell us a little bit about the team here? And sure. What does that stand for? Yeah, they both have acronyms. I think this, the, 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 the Connecticut Children's Medical Center acronym makes a little bit more sense than ours. They have the Suspected Child Abuse and Neglect, or SCAN team, up in Hartford, um, our close colleagues there. And here at Yale... Um, we have the DART team, uh, which stands for Detection, Assessment, Reporting, and Treatment. It's one of the oldest child abuse teams in the country. We're actually about to celebrate our 50th anniversary. There will be a celebration, and Tom, I expect <laughs> you to be there. All right. Um, the team uh, was formed at a time, um, again, nearly 50 years ago, when I think our communities were less comfortable talking about child abuse and saying the words out loud. So it's an acronym that uh, doesn't make a lot of sense and is a little bit euphemistic, but it's historical, and we're proud of it because of its history, so we're keeping it. So here at Yale, uh, the DART team um, consists of several um, experts in child abuse and neglect. Um, As you said, I'm board certified in this area of pediatrics. Um, our, our fearless leader is Dr. John Leventhal, who's run the program since its beginning um, and is really uh, an international leader in the field of child abuse and neglect. Um, 
We have other physicians and nurse practitioners, and there are social workers with whom we collaborate. Obviously, Tom, you are a crucial part of the team, um, as well as other people from the emergency department. Well, the emergency department is so important. It's such a frontline spot for appropriate detection um, and recognition of child abuse and neglect. So um, as you know, we meet weekly. We discuss all the cases in the children's hospital in which concern um, was raised, um, and we rely on each other because these cases are very, very hard. Um, We are very honest with each other. Um, The team is stronger than an individual. So it's a very important meeting to me um, because it's a peer review for me to help me get it right when I'm the one making the tough decisions about whether it is or it isn't um, abuse or neglect. Um, And I think our multidisciplinary team, and I I should add that we, you know, we're joined by members of the Department of Children and Families here in, in in New Haven, where um, many of the cases, you know, are, are evaluated by Child Protective Services, um, you should comment on what what you think about the process of the team, since you're a member of it. Yeah, I think it's a, a great venue to have multidisciplinary members of uh, the both the community, um, Child Protective Services. Uh, there's also radiology that attends. Um, and we also have uh, DCF nurses that are there, so it's a, a great team. And also, uh, you know, the law enforcement is also involved. It's, it's a great opportunity to discuss cases, and it's also a protected forum. Uh, so if I'm a community provider in, um, in a different part of the state and we have a, a question about a case, can we still call DART even though we're not, you know, necessarily connected with Yale? Absolutely. I think the the Y-axis line um, through Yale, which I wish I could spit out that number <laughs> at this moment, um, but easily found online, um, the Y-axis line through Yale New Haven Children's Hospital will, um, will will allow providers in the community to reach one of us who's a child abuse specialist um, 24-7 to be able to ask questions, run cases by us, and get some real-time advice uh, about whether uh, about how to manage. And sometimes our advice will be to transfer a child into the children's hospital um, for further evaluation and a consultation directly from us. And sometimes we can just give advice about how to manage in the in the outpatient, I mean, in the community setting, wherever you're potentially calling us from. Okay, that's great. All right, so let's discuss some more red flags in infants. Can you tell me what 10-4 FACES means and why that's so important for frontline providers to know about? Absolutely. So this work um, was done uh, by a, a friend and colleague of mine, Mary Clyde Pierce. Um, and her initial work was done in a, in a pediatric ICU setting um, where she was, where the patients were divided up into groups. And one group was suspected of having been physically abused. And um, that was after an evaluation by her child abuse team. And the other were kids who were injured in um, accidental ways like motor vehicle crashes. And they checked the children to see um, where if, if they had any bruises and where they were and how many there were um, over their bodies and came up with a decision rule. Um, the initial study was um, was the one that produced the 10-4 acronym, which okay. I'll tell you a little <laughs> bit about. Um, but they found that bruising in certain spots um, on chil- children up to four years of age were highly predictive of, of physical abuse. And that okay. was the torso, that's the T, yep. the ear, and the neck. So torso, ear, and neck, that's the 10. And the four has two meanings. Remember we talked about how rare bruising is in kids who can't get up on two legs and cruise about. So in her study, any bruising at all in a baby under four months of age 
was highly predictive of physical abuse. And the four also stands for up to four years of age. And that's where the 10 comes in. So any bruising in that TEN, torso, ear, and neck zone, in kids up to four years of age was also highly predictive of physical abuse. She subsequently added a few more letters to her to her <laughs> wonderful tool that's very easy to remember. So the faces that you referenced um, have the following meaning. So F stands for frenula. And the frenula are those little threads of tissue in your mouth, one that connects your tongue to the floor of your mouth, and the other two that connect the inside of your lips to your gums. Everyone who's listening can now feel their frenulum. <laughs> frenula. Um, and these frenula in very small babies who can't get up and walk around um, are, are places that can get torn or injured, um, usually when a bottle or a finger is forcefully and abusively thrust into a baby's mouth. And these bleed quite a lot, and we look carefully in baby's mouths to see if there's evidence of this kind of an injury. Um, I should add that once kids are able to get up and walk around, um, these are easily injured accidentally. So a typical story there is a toddler that's playing like picture on a stoop and face plants on one of the steps and tears that upper um, frenulum, frenum, the one that's, uh, you know, connects the top lip to the teeth, to the gums. Um, it'll bleed a lot, but that's an accidental injury. And a small baby that can't play on the stoop, it would be very worrisome. Um, so the A in that acronym stands for um, the auricular area, which is a fancy way of saying all around the ear. Yeah. Um, and so it's not just the ear itself, but, but in front of and behind the ear, that entire area is very hard to injure accidentally. So it's a very worrisome spot to find bruising um, in a small baby or child. Um, the C stands for cheek. And that's kind of important. Um, the bony areas of the cheek, if you like feel over your cheekbone or your jawbone, not there because those can actually be easily injured once you're up and about. But the squishy part of your cheek, um, the one that someone would pinch if they were telling you you were adorable, <laughs> um, is hard to injure accidentally. Um, the E stands for eyelid um, and the S stands for sclera, you know, the yeah. white part of your eye where there's, um, if you see hemorrhage there, out of the immediate postpartum period is a worrisome sign for physical abuse. So 10-4 faces. All right, great. And I think the one about sclera is actually very interesting. It's not something we would typically really think of um, without kind of reviewing this and knowing this information. So I think that's awesome. So if we kind of move ahead and get to fractures, so when I first started kind of thinking about child abuse, I would always think that a spiral fracture in a, in a child was always pathognomonic for child abuse. But as I kind of learned some more about child abuse, that's not necessarily correct. No. Um, I don't know where that came from. A lot of people have been taught that, that spiral fractures are very worrisome for abuse. It absolutely, much like bruising does, depends on the age and developmental ability of the child. Okay. So a spiral fracture actually in a toddler who can run around um, is, is quite common, and you may actually hear the term toddler's fracture. Um, most likely occurs from a plant of the foot and a twist onto that leg um, that results in a spiral fracture, often of... Um, you know, the tibia. Yeah. And and that is a common entity and not one that raises suspicion of abuse in, in my eyes, nor should it in yours. 
Um, but in a very small baby, that same fracture in a baby that can't ambulate at all would worry me considerably. So it's less the fracture itself. There are some fractures that are really hard to sustain in means other than abuse, like what comes to mind there, um, or like posterior rib fractures in babies, um, which are often due to squeezing of the baby's chest. That's a pretty worrisome one that it's hard to come up with an accidental mechanism for. Um, but for the most part, the same lens that we look at fractures, is it's the same as when we look at bruises. What can this baby do? How could they mm -hmm. injure themselves under their own power? Now, fractures also happen when adults can possibly drop babies, even accidentally. Right. Um, we've seen certainly fractures when parents or caregivers are carrying infants and fall themselves. That can happen. Um, so the, I can't overemphasize the importance of getting a careful history in this setting and deciding whether that history makes sense in, in terms of three things. And, and this is very much something that Dr. Leventhal taught me. The mechanism of injury, so it has to make sense mechanistically. The severity, so um, if someone tells you an infant you know, rolled off a, a very short surface and sustained a skull fracture like from a pillow onto the carpet, you're not really going to buy that. So you need to have the severity match up with the injury. And the last piece is the timing. So you can't hear about a recent injury, get an x-ray and see signs of healing, such as callus, right. um, and believe that it happened just this morning. So mechanism, severity, and timing, um, a great way to evaluate a history that you're given. And the most important thing I can stress is getting that careful history, listening, giving parents allowed a chance to talk, um, and deciding if that mechanism makes sense. Okay, great. So the listeners may be thinking, okay, why are you guys talking about fractures when you're talking about sentinel events? And I think it's really important to, for them to understand is that you may pick up fractures later on once you realize that the patient has a, uh, a bruise that doesn't make sense and you're concerned about it. And then you might do through a big center is do skeletal surveys. Can you discuss skeletal survey a little bit about which centers should really be doing them and how we do them here at Yale or at CCMC, kind of the basics of them? Sure. So one of the most important things about recognizing the sentinel injuries that we're talking about today is that once we recognize them, we can do the workup that you're now speaking about. And that workup is for what I'll call occult injury, not occult as in like, you know, yeah. <laughs> Satan and stuff like that. But a cult in that there are injuries that children can have sustained um, that are not appreciable on physical exam, even by the most skilled mm -hmm. bedside clinician. There are injuries that have to be identified by further workup. And one of the key pieces of that workup, as you mentioned, is the skeletal survey, um, which is two views of every bone in the body. And there, this the survey is best done um, in the hands of a pediatric radiologists. We're fortunate at Yale to have outstanding pediatric radiologists um, with whom we work every day. Um, and at Yale, because these, these injuries, once diagnosed, are, have so much social implication for children and families, um, our skeletal surveys are cleared by not one pediatric radiologist, but two pediatric radiologists to make sure that there's consensus on any diagnoses made on those surveys. Um, in my experience, um, these are best done by pediatric radiologists. Mm -hmm. So I think it is a reasonable cause to send a child to one of the children's hospitals in the state um, for this evaluation to take place. Um, I'll just mention there are other components of that occult workup, including screening labs. Um, we, 
in a big multi-centered study in which we participated, um, it was shown that uh, elevated LFTs or liver function tests, ALT and AST, um, over 80 are predictive of possible occult abdominal trauma. Um, In small babies, particularly under six months, we do neuroimaging to make sure there's no occult head trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not appreciable on physical exam. And if we diagnose any intracranial injury, we're likely to order uh, also um, a helpful exam by the pediatric ophthalmologist who will do a dilated uh, retinal exam to look for retinal hemorrhages. So that kind of rounds out our list of things that we might order um, as a child abuse specialist to identify any occult injuries in a baby that has a sentinel injury. Wow, that's pretty extensive. Yeah, it took me a little while to tell you about all that, Tom, (laughs) but it's important. No, absolutely. So if we look at skeletal surveys, sometimes you might pick up a corner fracture or a bucket handle fracture. And I know Dr. Leventhal has done some extensive work on this. Can you speak to that? Well, those are fractures that um, more so than others are are harder to explain by accidental mechanisms. Um, These are um, sometimes referred to as the classic metaphyseal lesion, classic because they often are um, very clear indicators of child abuse and neglect. Uh, sorry, abuse in that setting. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are f- these are injuries um, that growing children are particularly vulnerable to. They occur at the growth plates. I think listeners know that growth occurs at the distal ends of bones. Um, and that area of the metaphysis where bone growth is happening, um, there is vulnerability to insult and injury there. So um, when children are either forcefully shaken and their um, hands and feet um, are moving back and forth in rotational way, that can lead to um, a fracture through the growth plate or a metaphyseal fracture, a corner fracture, a bucket handle fracture, all okay. synonymous. Um, mm-hmm. Also, we think that forceful pulling and yanking at the extremities um, can lead to this kind of injury to which small children are particularly vulnerable. Okay. You know, when we discuss medicine and learn about medicine, I think one of the great ways to uh, apply it is actually through cases. Can you uh, give us a case um, that you've seen maybe a sentinel event and then how things unfolded? Yeah. Um, I I had a patient years ago um, who first presented to her primary care provider um, at about four months of age. And at that time, um, the chief complaint were little red dots like over her hands. Okay. Um, And the primary care provider appreciated this might be due to a bleeding diathesis, which I think is a very good thought, um, but didn't really consider trauma as a possibility. Um, This is a baby who had um, a single mom. It was just the two of them living together, and the mom was really the exclusive caregiver. And I think that's important because I think that that actually contributed to the delay in understanding what was going on in this family. So the provider ordered um, labs to rule out a bleeding diathesis, which came back as normal, but the baby again presented a little while later with new bruises in other parts of her body. Um, And at that point, um, the baby was sent by the primary care provider um, to the emergency department where, again, a bleeding diathesis was considered in the absence of thinking about child abuse. Um, And more hematology labs were, were ordered and the baby was sent to um, the hematologists for uh, specialist care. Um, actually, it took two more visits with new bruises in, in both cases until the, the final visit at hematology 
when the baby presented with a swollen thigh and an x-ray was obtained and it showed an acute fracture of the baby's femur. And at that point, I think people finally decided what was going on and I was consulted. And at the close of my workup um, that we just went through, I diagnosed a total of five fractures in this baby. Um, in addition to that, so there were multiple wow. opportunities, yeah, with sentinel injuries that were misunderstood as suggestive of a bleeding problem, which certainly needs to be considered mm-hmm. in these cases because we do diagnose bleeding diatheses in, in children and babies that have abnormal bruising. Um, but child abuse really wasn't considered. And, and in doing the look back on this case and talking to the providers involved, what I heard most of all was that, you know, the mom was the only caregiver and she seemed so concerned about the baby and she kept bringing the baby in for care. The thought being that if you were harming your baby, you'd hide her away and, and try to avoid detection of what was going on. I actually think this mom was quite desperate for people to figure it out. Yeah. I doubt that she meant to harm her baby. I think she was overwhelmed and, and that's usually the case in parents who are physically abusive. They don't plan to do it. Um, but they lose their temper and they act out on the baby. Uh, so it took, I, w- I think, all told about five presentations to primary care and, and specialist care with this bruising before the diagnosis was finally made. Hmm. So that brings us up to our, our next point, and that is barriers. So in 2015, you and... Uh, some other team from Yale, Gungeon, and some other team put together a paper on barriers and facilitators to detecting child abuse and neglect. Can you speak to that? Sure. Um, I think this was a particularly important paper because, um, as you know, Gunjan is one of our fine um, peds emergency medicine physicians, and she has a, a special uh, interest in helping frontline providers to know what they're looking at and do the right thing and, and, and protect children who've been already physically abused. Um, and she's been a wonderful champion in her work throughout the state along with you, Tom. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. It's well-deserved. Um, so Gunjan has expertise in, in qualitative research, and she, she was smart enough to ask frontline providers about their experience um, with detecting and reporting um, suspected child abuse. And, and what she found um, was that there are, are some pretty recurrent barriers that pr- that crop up in the frontline setting. By the way, my sympathy goes to the frontline provider. Um, one of the things she found was that the very busyness and chaos of the ED setting um, contributed as a barrier okay. to recognition. No yeah. one, I mean, I appreciate that. I, I'm a consultant, and I'm not, you know, there receiving whatever comes in the door the way you are on a daily basis, Tom. And my, I'm so impressed with providers who can see anything and everything in the span of a shift in the ED and have to be ready for so much that comes through the door. Um, one of the things that providers in, in the study um, shared was that very environment makes it difficult. Because as you started out by saying, it requires sort of slowing down a little bit and thinking about a problem that parents aren't necessarily telling you about. That's hard. Um, So that was, in fact, a barrier. Others included um, providers who were worried about um, negative consequences of making a a report or suspecting abuse, like worrying about the parent's reaction or possibly Mm -hmm. legal action after that, um, getting it right or getting it wrong. Um, And I think they also... um, felt like they just, it was an uncomfortable topic to address, um, that it was a challenge to, to be able to think about child abuse in that busy setting. Yeah, that's great. 
And some of the other things that also I noticed came up too were personal biases, which that we can actually do a whole segment on. Maybe we'll do that in the future because that's a great topic. Um, and also, you know, patient satisfaction. Uh, some folks don't want to go and testify in court, so they don't may not do a report because they're worried they're going to have to testify potentially. Um, and also the whole desire to go ahead and believe the care provider. You, I think you touch on a couple of really important points. I think that we'll, we'll come back to bias one day in the future, but yeah. I have to just mention that because I do think that that case that I talked to you through really illustrates this, that you know the bias of thinking that a parent is caring and loving and connected to the child might really stop you from recognizing clear signs of abuse mm-hmm. that are right in front of you. Um, and bias can work in both directions. You can overly suspect in the setting of, of families that maybe are um, somehow meet your personal description of what a child abuser would look like, even though you might be wrong, and families that really don't. So you could miss it by virtue of your, 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 your preconceived biases. Um, but the other point that I wanted to echo was that fear of, um, of being you know, sued I th- or being in court. Mm-hmm. I do think that providers get very worried about that um, and will in, at times um, shy away uh, from, from getting involved in the legal aspects of reporting suspected child abuse because they're afraid of that. And I, I don't think they need be. We are very happy to help people prepare for potential testimony in court. And once we as a child abuse um, providers are involved, oftentimes we can play that role. Um, I testify in court frequently um, and can often take that responsibility um, away from the frontline providers. The bottom line is you have to do what's right by the patient, and that's what it's all about. Can we just do a summary of all the things we've spoke about today? Uh, maybe if we could go over like 10, four faces one more time and just kind of we'll try to wrap up here. Sure. Um, but let me add before I do 10, four faces again, um, that in that in that same vein of doing the right thing for patients, I think that I'd like to I'd like all frontline providers to know that they do have um, backup in us as the child abuse pediatricians of the state. I think, okay. you know, that's being able to talk to a specialist and know that you're on the right track and worried for the right reasons, in my experience, can really make a difference in, in moving forward and making a report. We're also great um, kind of bad cops in this because if I tell you that you need to make a report, even though you're on the phone with me telling me that they seem like such nice people and and it just doesn't seem like it could be, I would still be able um, to say, like, this is a bruise and a very small baby and it needs to be evaluated. It may not be abuse, but we need to take the next steps um, of evaluating it further. Um, so back to 10-4 faces. <laughs> um, let's just go through the mnemonic quickly this time. So um, the T stands for torso, and that's anything on, a, on the body um, in a baby and a child up to four years of age, absent the arms, head, neck, uh, and legs. Um, the ears the neck, and that's in kids up to four years of age, any bruising at all in a baby under four, okay. four months and under, and the faces, frenula, auricular area, cheek, eyelid, and sclera. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> all right, great. Well, I just want to really thank you, Andy, for coming here today. This has been awesome. Uh, I think the listeners will get a lot out of it, and we'll do some more. Maybe we'll talk about bias on the next one. But I appreciate your time and appreciate all the work and the help you provide us on the front lines. I appreciate the hard work you do on the front lines and the hard work that everyone does on the front lines. And we're here to help. And it's been a pleasure talking with you, Tom. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you.